0: This morning, I'd like us to work through uh, Genesis chapter three. So, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the third chapter of Genesis. These will be familiar words uh, to many of us, but. Remember as we read that this is the very word of God. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, "Uh, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So, the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth, To guard the way to the tree of life. But we will, uh, Lord willing, be considering this passage together. Uh, But before we do that, we're going to pray. And I'll just ask that you uh, just take a moment individually uh, to bow before the Lord and to pray. Uh, I don't know what your week has been like. Uh, Certainly for a lot of folk, it's, it's a hectic week. Uh, We know there are a lot of our folk who are not here this morning who normally are, and they're busy and traveling, others are sick and all the rest. So just take a moment, wherever your heart's at, before the Lord to bow in prayer, and after a few moments I'll lead us together. Our Heavenly Father, this last week, if we have been uh, at all sensitive and mindful, we have been reminded of the fact that you have given your Son into this world. That the great seed of the woman who would destroy the work of the serpent has been born. And that he is defeated in his own death. The power of the devil, and the power of sin. And Lord, I pray that this morning you will help us to see in a new and in a fresh way uh, the glory of the seed of the woman Jesus. I pray that you will help us to appreciate all that he is and all that he's done. I pray that you will give us, uh, by your Spirit, the ability to uh, move beyond circumstances, move beyond distraction. I pray that you will allow us to hear your word as it really is, the the word of the living God. I pray that you will impress upon us in, in a profound way who we are not merely as creatures of dust who will return to dust, but creatures of dust who are also in culpable rebellion against their creator. I pray that you will search us by your Spirit. I pray that you will uh, so work in our hearts that we are compelled to recognize who you are, to embrace you and love you, and to honor you not only in our uh, words, but also in our lives and our actions and our thoughts and even in our emotions. I pray that you will bring us completely into alignment with yourself. Help us to think your thoughts to feel
1: the,
0: the, the way that you emote. Help us to perceive things through your eyes. We know that this is impossible for us apart from your Spirit and your Word, so we pray that this morning your Spirit will powerfully work through your Word in such a way that you alone receive glory. Do this, whether it means rebuke or correction for us, repentance, uh, whether it means you know, joy and rejoicing, whatever we need, We pray that you will do, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this text is um, intentionally chosen this morning uh, to set the frame for the next year. Uh, For those of you who are here regularly, you know that we plan on working through the Bible uh, in the next year, the one-year Bible reading program, and every week I intend on selecting a text from the week's reading, so you will already have read the text that I'm going to preach from. This will keep me from uh, having to sort of work through every chapter, every verse. You'll have the context yourself through your own personal reading. This is the only time I plan on, although it may happen, I'm not 100% sure as the year unfolds, this is the only time I plan on preaching a text in advance. Uh, So you will be reading this text, I I believe, on Tuesday uh, if, if you follow the program. Because tomorrow is January 1st. How do you feel about that? I am so glad we cancelled Children's Church today. <laughs> that is the best thing that's ever happened in a service. It, it took me until about last month to stop writing 2015 on my date. So, I, so tomorrow we're 2018 and some of us are excited. Some of us will have the adrenaline to stay up well past midnight tonight. So it's going to be a delight for everyone in that home for sure. Uh, so I, I think that this text, so it really does... It sets a biblical trajectory. It's absolutely crucial if you want to understand the rest of what's going on in Scripture. Now, there's a ton that can be said. This is not going to be even close to a full exposition of the text. That really would take uh, hours and hours. And I don't have the capacity to do that in terms of that length. Well, actually, that's not true. I do. I could talk that long. Uh, I don't have the capacity to exhaust the text. There's just so much here. So I'm going to be selective, give a little bit of a framework for it, and this will also rough in what we're going to be seeing in terms of the biblical trajectory and narrative uh, throughout the year. Now, before you get here to Genesis 3, you are supposed to have thoughtfully read Genesis 1 and 2. Now, most of you are going to be familiar with that text, at least in rough outline. A few very important things. One, The Bible starts with the presupposition of the existence of God. Uh, There is not a philosophical abstract argument put forth to try to vindicate the fact of his existence. You simply begin with God. That is the fundamental fact of reality. In fact, I would argue at great length that if you don't start with the presupposition of God, then nothing else in experience will be intelligible. What we find in Genesis 1 gives us the foundation for a functioning worldview and approach to life. In fact, if by the time you're out of Genesis 1, you have a view of God, you have theology, you have metaphysics, you have an understanding of what's been created, nature is creation, you have uh, anthropology, what are human beings, what is human nature and identity. Uh, You have ethics, you have commands that God gives, that people are morally responsible to fulfill. You even have epistemology in a a very, uh, very basic form. That is, we are able to know because God has designed us to be knowers and God has designed the world to be discoverable. So everything you need, in nascent form, in embryonic form, everything you need to actually have a workable world and life view, you find revealed in Genesis 1. Not bad. Uh, just off the, off the beginning when it's not a philosophy book. So you're given all of these really rich frameworks. You're told that God takes the world which he creates, and then if you work through the days carefully, what God is doing is God is forming livable habitations for creatures. So by the time you work through the first three days, God has formed domains. And in the next three days, God correspondingly fills those domains. So that he creates light on day one. Day four, he creates light. He fills the domain. Day two, he creates sky and water. Day five, correspondingly, he he creates sea creatures and birds. He's filling the domain. Day three, land. Day six, land animals and human beings. He's filling the domain. So what God is doing is he's creating habitats... For life to flourish. The high point, of course, obviously comes in day six. And you know this we have more than twice as many words for day six as for any other words in Genesis one. But also you have a repetition of bara, that is creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. God creates human beings, bara. And so we're told three times actually in one verse that God does a special work of creation for human beings. The point of the first six days of creation is anthropological, that is, it is about human beings. Not because we ourselves are intrinsically so special, but because we are special in relation to God as his image bearers. And then God, on day seven, having completed his work of creation, enters into his sanctuary. Eden, the garden, is a temple sanctuary and royal throne room where God lives. So you have the heavenly throne room, and now you have an earthly counterpart, which is why God shows up and walks in the garden. It's his royal residence. It's the sanctuary. The sanctuary is only the place. The sanctuary is the sanctuary because of God's presence that makes it holy. So what you have is a garden-temple throne room. And Adam and Eve's job is to care for it and to extend its boundaries until it is coextensive with the earth. Eden is obviously not all of the earth. That's why God plants the garden in the east. And also why, this should be very obvious, they can be kicked out of it. They can be kicked out of it because it's one small area. It's not even remotely The entire globe. Now, the climax of it, in terms of evaluation, is that it is very good. So you know this. You know this. You know that God's creation is very good. And then you hit Genesis 3. And the serpent is... There's so much to say with this, but the serpent is kind of a stock image. Uh, And and so the serpent represents Satan. You get this all through the Bible. The the serpent, the dragon, the snake, the Satan. And so Satan comes and he tempts Eve and he tempts Adam to sin. And note how he does it. This is so important. In fact, if you track through this, I would argue that this text actually gives you a fundamental psychology of temptation that is true every time you're tempted. There'll be slightly different sort of iterations of it. But this is the fundamental way that Satan tempts people. First, did God really say? That's the, that's the way it begins. Did God really say? Did he really mean? It's kind of hard to actually capture the force of the text. But, but the, the, the implication is, wait a minute, God God couldn't have meant that exactly the way that sounds. That doesn't seem to make sense. Does that make sense to you? Did God really say you, you can't eat from these trees? Why would he do that? And so it begins by insinuating doubt. It just sows a little bit of doubt. He's not contradicting. He's not saying God was wrong. But he's saying, did, did you really think that makes sense, actually? Let, let, let's let's reason it. Let's take God's word And now make it an object for our own evaluation. We will be the ones who sort of stand in judgment on the propriety and wisdom and goodness of what God has said. So let's reason it out. Eve, you can trust me. I'm the devil. (laughs) Let's let's talk about this. Did he really say? Eve says, No, no, we, we may eat from the fruit, but... He did say, he did say, we can't eat from this one tree. And he also said we must not touch it, which isn't something that is said before now. Now, now perhaps God did say that, perhaps. But it seems like here, she's, she's just exaggerating a little bit the, the prohibition. He said don't eat, yes, but he also said don't touch or we will die. Interestingly enough, here what Eve does, which... I think is also true of us when we're tempted. She acknowledges and then completely ignores all that God has provided for her. No, 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 no. God didn't say we can't eat from all the trees. He said we can eat from all of them, except this one, this, this really special one that I'm focusing on now. And he even said not to touch it that should have been a clue to stop and say, hey, wait a minute. Look at how richly God's blessed me. God doesn't seem to be in the business of depriving me gratuitously of things that are good. So, so, if God has actually given me so much, if he so richly blessed me in so many ways, then maybe there's a good reason. He doesn't just sort of go around arbitrarily limiting my enjoyment of life. Satan then moves to the next step, which is direct contradiction. He begins by sowing doubt, then he directly contradicts. You will not certainly die. Fascinatingly, the first contradiction, if you think about our society, this is exactly where people are in the main today in our society. The first thing that Satan directly contradicts is the concept of judgment. God's not going to judge you. You will not certainly die. If we know anything about God, it's that he's not going to judge anyone. If we know anything about God, it's that he's just going to accept people just the way they are. He's God after all. He understands we're all just doing our best. He understands that we have all these different temptations. He doesn't expect any of us to be perfect. There's not going to be any judgment for anyone. Everyone's going to be fine. If there is a God, he's a God of love, and everyone is going to be just fine. You will not certainly die. If you listen to a lot of social discourse about ethics, that is exactly the refrain that runs through it all. Don't judge. There is no judgment. God accepts everyone, and so should you. Now, of course, that last bit, there is, there is an element of truth in it. Uh, but certainly it needs to be transposed into a biblical framework. Now, the reason Satan denies judgment, contradicts judgment, is because he moves on to doubt the character of God. So, you deny judgment. Why? Why do you deny the Word of God? Because you deny God's goodness. God's trying to limit you. No, no, God knows that if you eat of it, you will be like Him. And so, what Satan does is he contradicts the judgment by casting doubt on God's character, he casts aspersions. On God's character. He's really just trying to keep you down. And then, the third contradiction is to say, in fact, God knows that you will be like him. You will know good and evil. You will be the master of your own faith. You will be the sovereign of your own life. Who's God to tell you right from wrong? You will be like God. You don't let him set the parameters for your moral life. You, you follow your heart. You do what's best for you. You know what's best for you better than God does. So so just go for it. God knows you will be like Him. This is the fundamental sin in the human heart. This usurping of the prerogative and throne of deity. I don't want God sorting out my life. I'd rather do that myself. So God says, do this. I look at my life and I say, well, you know what? I think I'd rather do that. I will choose to operate like I am the sovereign God over my own existence. You will be like God. Write your own rules. When the woman, verse 6, says, saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, now this is obviously a play on goodness. By the time you you to Genesis 1, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good, Now here you have it was good for food. We probably would be in a very different predicament than the one we're in currently. If the text said, "When the woman saw that the fruit was rotten and filled with maggots," right? It probably wouldn't have been quite as tempting. But that's one of the things with temptation; it's tempting. Right. I mean, this sounds pretty obvious. But one of the things we actually need to I think we need to get to the point where you acknowledge that there is temptation. The world is filled with temptation. Even Eden had temptation. And temptation is tempting precisely because there are elements of real goodness in it. We're not we're not tempted by garbage. Now part of the problem actually in in the the perversion of our sinful nature is now that actually some people are tempted to Perversion, but at some level, all sin is perversion. It, it, it's all twisted. It, it, it's all deformed. It's just, it's just a matter of degree, and, and part of the way that we evaluate matter of degree is is through um, social acceptance. But all all sin is debased. All sin is perversion at, at some level. Nevertheless, the fruit of the tree was good for the food. Fu- was good for food. That is, there, there's a real. Bodily appetite that it corresponds to. But it's also pleasing to the eye. It's aesthetically beautiful. It looks good. It is attractive. It is. There's no denying that. And so there is correspondence to bodily appetite. There is beauty in the eye of the beholder. It is pleasing. And desirable for gaining wisdom. Intellectual, personal growth. Now, you put those three things together, and one of the things that you can't help but notice is that absolutely none of them are wrong. Good for food. That's not wrong. Aesthetically beautiful. That's not wrong. Or at least I hope it's not wrong, being as aesthetically beautiful as I am. You know, I I hope it's okay. Um, Desiring wisdom in Proverbs calls us again and again and again and again to grow in wisdom. So what's the problem here? The problem is that Eve sees three very good categories And thinks that she can actualize them apart from obeying God. And that's the mistake. God has given her all that she needs in terms of goodness for food. God has surrounded her with aesthetic delight in this garden and in this universe. And God is walking with her, teaching her, instructing her. She will grow in wisdom. In fact, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so she is going to get everything she desires from this fruit that she's not supposed to have. And of course what we discover is that when we give in to temptation all the promises erode. What we find is that what we could have had legitimately and with greater blessing if we had followed God's way is sometimes irretrievably lost. And it's gone. And what you desired, rightly when wrongly channeled, is disastrous. What, what should have happened? What should happen in our lives? Is one Eve should have taken the warning of judgment seriously. There is judgment there is now, as Christians, sometimes we can, we can actually be quite so wicked as to cover up judgment with grace. Well, yes, but God will forgive me. Yes, but God is gracious. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. But it's actually, in Paul's view, it's beginning to understand grace that is actually the great guard against temptation. When you, when you see how much God has done for you, and when you know that God is a forgiving God, when you know how loving he is, the motivation is no longer fear of punishment, the motivation is, I, I actually I actually genuinely do want to please God, I do. Now there's, there's a crazy, there's, that is, there's weakness of will, so sometimes we, we end up doing what we know isn't right, and then so that's a whole other complicated situation. But fundamentally, the orientation of the Christian's life is not, well, well, I'll sin and then I know God will forgive me. It's precisely because I know God's a forgiving God, I, I don't want to sin, and it grieves me that I do. But more to the point, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of Christians really struggle and fail in different areas. And they, they, they just, the, the fear of punishment just doesn't, it's just not enough. It, it, it just doesn't curb it. Partly because, again, you know, God is a forgiving God. I think what's missing, perhaps, in, in my life, and perhaps in, in some of our lives, What's missing isn't a proper fear of judgment, although that is the case. What's missing is a proper view of the goodness of God. So if Adam and Eve had actually just stopped and taken stock of how good God had been to them, of how good God must be to have brought them into existence. I mean, the very fact that they, that they have Bodies and eyes, and the very fact that they have desires and thoughts, it was all because of God. How, how good of a gift is that? And, and so to recognize that everything we have, every blessing we have, what we actually are, it's all from God, it's all from His hand. He is a good God. And, and you know, in a sense, forget punishment. Don't deny the goodness of God. That that if your nature leads you in contradiction to what God has said, it is not an improvement. You are not better than God. You you are not more moral than God. You are not more righteous than God. You are not wiser than God. God is good. Trust His goodness. That's That's the great antidote. That's the great antidote to sin. Know that God is better. God is better than what you see. God is better than what you feel. God is better than what you think. He is good, ultimately and perfectly good. And you just, you just can't improve on what God is and what He tells you because everything He tells you is for your good. It is. And whenever I sin, I am denying the goodness of God. I'm saying, God, you know what? You're, I, I know you're basically good, but but your goodness stops here, and, and, and I, I can improve a little bit on what you offer me. No, we need, we need to recover a, a deep view of the goodness of God to live for him and to know how he orders our lives. Well, they, they sin. They have a fall, and now there's, there's, they discover that they're naked. Nakedness here is, is not merely nudity. It's um, and if you if you think that that is just you do recognize that clothes would have been developed at some point. Um, if if you doubt that, then um, go outside today without a jacket. Right. So it's not like if there was no sin, there would be no cold. Okay. So there was no clothing to be developed at some point. So it's not a reference to nudity, really. It's a reference to transparency and vulnerability. Now they know that they are seen. They're perceived. And for the first time, they're ashamed. For the first time now, actually being known is scary. And every single human being ever since has always felt that way. What if people actually knew me? What if people actually knew how I think? What if people actually knew what goes on in my heart? What if people actually knew me? Being understood is perhaps one of the most terrifying things we can we can contemplate, and so we wear masks, we hide we become masters of presenting ourselves in certain ways. All the while desperately trying to cover up who we are and our, sense and our inadequacies and our guilt and our shame and just our fear of rejection and not measuring up. We're always compensating for our deficiencies. We're scared to be known. God comes along and calls out to them, not because he doesn't know where they are, it's like you know if if you ever have to discipline children, which if you ever have children, you will um, you do realize that there are times when when you ask questions that you absolutely know the answer to, so did anything happen this afternoon? No, no, no no no, no, oh was were those five lamps broken uh, earlier this morning? Uh, or did that just happen spontaneously this afternoon? Uh, as, as you hear the, the screams and, and the fighting and, and the slamming of doors, you go, is something going on? <laughs> the little child's hiding under their covers. Oh, where are you? Are, are you in the closet? Are you in the bed? Where are you? And so God comes along, and, well, where are you? He knows exactly where they are. He knows exactly what they've done. What you find here is you have utter alienation. They're now alienated from God. This is the most tragic of all of the consequences. Their relationship with God is broken. Whereas they had free and full fellowship with him before, and See, the problem for us is we don't, we, don't, we, we don't understand this text. We don't, because we have never had that kind of relationship with God. We, we can't imagine what was lost. We, we just can't imagine what it was like to live in this world and to know God without sin. And in this world, we never, we never will. We'll never know what that was like. So we literally cannot begin to contemplate the magnitude of what was lost in moving from full relationship with God to alienation from him. But they're also alienated from themselves. That's why they're covering themselves up. That is, they are internally torn up with guilt and shame. It's real guilt. It's not just guilt feelings. They are guilty. And now they're ashamed. Now you start to see cognitive dissonance going on. Now you start to see them them internally fractured. They're no longer whole people. And once again, because none of us are whole people, because we're all born fractured, none of us have any idea what it was like to be an integrated human being. But it must have been pretty great. And they're alienated from each other. You get this. You also get the internal fracture that they won't take responsibility for anything. So the Lord God says to Adam, Adam, where are you? Uh, Not hiding. (laughs) Okay, so you're hiding. Why? Uh, I'm naked. Fascinating. That didn't used to bother you. Something happened that makes you a little bit self-conscious there? Well, yes, something did happen as a matter of fact. Remember that woman that you put here? That's what he says? Whose fault is it? It's God's. That woman, her fault. Actually, no. Your fault. Who's, who's not to blame here? Me. If there's one guy who's not at fault, God, it's me. Because I didn't create her and and she did it, and you did that, so it's not me. Doubtless, Eve was very happy to be blamed. She she was doubtless very happy that Adam was, was kind enough to throw her under the bus before the Lord God in the garden. And Eve says, Yeah, you know, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. No. Eve says, Don't look at me! It was the serpent! they're just just, just blaming everyone else. And so what you have now is you have an inability to take personal responsibility, not for the last time in human history, and you have uh, this this alienation where now human beings are blaming each other. Now there's division and strife. So where you have alienation from God, now you have an internal alienation, now you have external alienation. Relationships are broken. You also have alienation from creation. So that now creation and life is going to come through pain and sweat and thorns where the ground itself is cursed. That's a pretty high price. Severed relationship with God. Destru- destruction of internal integrity. Fractured relationships with others even a fractured relationship with God's good world. It's very easy to look at all the negatives, to look at the wars, to look at the violence, to look at all the strife and misery and all the rest, all the problems that we have, and and to regret that this happened. But over the last few weeks, the thing that I've thought the most about this text It's not the presence of negative things. It's the absence of all the goodness that could have been. Do you realize how much how much love will never be experienced that would have been experienced if it wasn't for sin? Do you realize what our friendships would be? Do you know what our church would be? What our neighborhoods would be? Do you know what our world would actually be? The worst thing isn't the presence of violence. It's the absence of love. And so now, even in Christ, where God is working to make us holy and loving, our relationships will still never be what they ought to be. In this world, our relationships will never be what they could have been and should be because of the actuality of sin, because of the potentiality of sin, and even very, very tragically, because of the possible perception of sin even when there isn't any. And all this means is that our relationships in this world will never even be close to what they could have been. And that to me is just unspeakably grievous. But even in the midst of curse I will put enmity between you and the woman, Genesis 3.15. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That actually, as much as I really truly do, like the NIV translation, that's a bad translation. Crush and strike are the same word in the Hebrew text. And should be translated the same way. The idea is that both receive a horrific, violent injury. To the one, it's to the head. To the other, it's to the heel. Now, it's pretty obvious, if your head is crushed, that's more significant than if your heel is crushed. Nonetheless, it's the same violent struggle, it's the same infliction of pain on both people, same word. The idea, though, is almost like you know, if, if you think about uh, you know, a serpent on the path, and I, I, could, I could tell you a story, but I, I won't bother, uh, about the time when I was in Pennsylvania hiking up a mountain with, with a young, young guide. And we were told, well, I mean, I'll just tell the story, okay, because uh, you're so interested. Uh, we were told, go up on this rock, it's, it's a beautiful overlook, looking out over the Pennsylvania mountains and, and valleys, and, and there are rattlesnakes that nest underneath this rock. But they never go on top of the rock. And so, I, of course, because snakes obviously understand where they're supposed to be. So, you know, if they understand it, then we're fine. So we go hiking up, and there's never any rattlesnakes here. And this, this uh, camp council is about five feet in front of me walking towards the edge of, of the cliff. Little bush here puts his foot down, and all we hear are multiple rattles. And he stops, and I, and I say a quick quick prayer that all the venom will go into his leg, not mine. And, and, and we stop, and we wait. And then he slowly backs up. And underneath this little bush, there are five five to six foot long rattlesnakes all coiled up together. He almost stepped right on them. And so then they started untangling and, and it's kind of interesting. So they was sort of watching them. they were five feet away. And, and he had a, you know, a, one of those walking sticks. And I remember, there has been a t- twice in my life where I've been like absurdly tempted to do stupid things. <laughs> one was when I was out for a walk and I saw a porcupine. And just the way it was sitting, I'm like, the way it's quilled, I'm like, if you were careful, you could just, like, pet it. You know, because, like, it's quills lie down safe. i like, as long as it didn't... And so I, was, I, kinda, I thought about it, and anyway, that didn't happen. And this one, I said to him, when we were watching the snakes, I said, you know what, I bet if you took your stick and kind of stood back, you could, like, flick them off the cliff. Like, you should try that. And, and he didn't. So anyway, I, so we're watching these snakes, and I thought, well, if he had been bit with that, I mean, he, that could have been very serious. But a snake strikes low. It's like if you're bit, a snake strikes at your feet, and and in your reaction, you just crush it down. That's the image here. The snake strikes, it hits you, and then you just, in reaction, stomp on it and break its head. So that there's a real injury to the person who's stricken, or struck, but the snake is destroyed. The seed of the woman is a collective. That is, it is all of her offspring who follow God, culminating in Jesus, who will ultimately destroy the work of the devil. This verse is called the Proto-Evangelium. That is, the first gospel. This is the first gospel promise in the Bible. And it sets up the entire trajectory of redemptive history that there is going to come a champion who will destroy the work of the devil and he will be grievously hurt in the process. In fact, we know that he will die, but he will conquer death. And that's one of the most beautiful things that Jesus comes as the second, as, as the last Adam. The first Adam in his life brings death and the last Adam in his death brings life. And not only that, but the amazing thing, if you work through a biblical trajectory, by the time you get to the end of Revelation, what do you have? Reconciliation with God. You have internal integrity that we are healed and whole. You have a group of people, a new covenant community, that are actually so integrated and healed together that they constitute one body. You also live in a new heavens and new earth. All of that alienation of our sin is more than restored through what Jesus Christ does. Reconciliation with God. Reconciliation with self. Reconciliation with each other. Thank God. And a new home. A place where righteousness dwells. And you know, on that day, on that day, we are going to love people for the very first time for real. Like, like, what it should be. The greatest relationships you have in this world are just the faintest shadow of what awaits in that day. Your closest time with God now is the faintest whisper of the full thunder of the reality of that day. Christ has redeemed and restored it all. And actually even more so. What we get isn't just Eden restored. What we get is Eden glorified. It's even better. Now the act of mercy here is at the end God forbids that they eat from the tree of of life. Sinners can't live forever. That's the point. God in mercy will not allow sinners to live forever. And so they're kicked out of the garden, and then the way to the tree of life is guarded because you don't want to eat and confirm yourself in that mode of existence eternally. But Revelation, or the great vision of the water of life flowing down the main street from the throne of God, and you have the tree of life. And where is the tree of life? It's on each side of the river. Well, how on earth is that possible? The tree of life is obviously one level of metaphor, but the point is that in the new heavens and new earth, there are trees of life, plural. Because now you're glorified, now you're redeemed, now you're without sin. Eat all you want, live forever. And those trees of life, they produce crops every month. They're, they're just different. The leaves are for the healing of the nations. It's all about life and abundance forever and ever and ever. That's what Jesus has done for us. Creatures of dust. Raising their puny fists in the face of God in rebellion. Saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. All this restoration, all this reconciliation. Oh, Felix Culpa. As the church fathers used to say, oh happy fault, our sin actually in God's grace produces an enormous amount of happy consequences in the future because of what Jesus has done for us. And this is what we're going to celebrate this morning with communion. The, the seed of the woman struck by the devil, a crushed heel, shed blood that brings reconciliation and life. I'm going to ask uh, the gentlemen come to come forward who are going to help distribute these elements. Uh, those who are not going to be passing them out, take a moment to pray and prepare your heart, and in a moment we'll celebrate communion together.